current state. All right? For those of you that are visiting, visiting today, I'm glad that you are here. And though you came to support one of these little ones that we just dedicated, I hope that you actually have a fresh encounter with God. I hope that you have a fresh encounter with the Spirit today. Uh, I get that you're here in support. It's wonderful. But I do pray that you have a fresh revelation of God today and this morning. Uh, you joined us at a perfect time because we are in the midst of a series through the book of Ecclesiastes. What a joy to walk through together. Uh, the leaves in the sermon graphic are officially brown and are on their way to the ground. Thankfully, though, we just have two weeks left in Ecclesiastes, for those of you who are hating this series. For those of you who are loving it, I'm really sorry. Uh, next week will be our final week, and we will close it out together. But the series has been entitled Life Worth Living. And next week, being the final week of this teaching series, we will be looking at the rather simplistic but beautiful and weighty conclusion from the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, based on these uh, enigmatic and mysterious musings from this ancient teacher, upwards of 900 years before Jesus of Nazareth. Now, chapter 7 is once again a subtle turning point in the larger structure of the book, even if it feels like Ecclesiastes lacks structure, and it does feel that way throughout <laughs> The first two chapters are documenting the pursuits of the teacher, or the coalette, or the preacher, to find meaning and significance under the sun. That's a phrase we see over and over again. Chapters 3 through 6 being the teacher's observations within this pursuit of significance and meaning. And chapters 7 through 12 where we are turning toward today, being counsel that the teacher provides to his assembly or to his gathering. So we have pursuit, observations, and then counsel. That's kind of the three-part structure of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now what I want to do today is to highlight three observations or points from chapter 7. There are, in chapter 7, over a dozen proverb-like statements that the teacher gives, and they could be expounded upon uh, on their own, but today I just want to focus on three of them, just three seemingly simple observations as you extend much mercy and grace to me. <laughs> the first observation that I want to make is found in verse 1 of chapter 7. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says this. It says, A good name 
is better than fine perfume. Fine perfume. Do uh, any of you have friends or family members, or they may be here today, I don't know, um, that you've come across in your lifetime and you wonder why their parents gave them that name? Like you wonder what was going on in their parents' mind when they decided to give them that name. For some, it's, it's about uniqueness. I want my son or daughter to have a unique name that's distinct, that stands out. Or there's also some of us who have names that, let's be honest, are just spelled wrong. <laughs> They're just spelled wrong, okay? Uh, exactly. <laughs> it may be a very common name, but a very uncommon way of uh, pronouncing that name, setting that child up for a future of failure and constantly correcting people, even though it's not their fault. It's not their fault. Is that anybody today? You feel like that's been you your whole life. You have just experienced oppression from your family for giving you that name. Anybody? No one? You don't want to admit it. You know, some of you are like, oh, I hate my name. I always have, you know. Set me up for failure. Uh, my brother's name is Drew. D-R-U. <laughs> it's the stupidest way of spelling the name. Love my parents to death. That is dumb. Utterly dumb. When I text him often or I use his name in a text message, more times than not, it autocorrects to drug. <laughs> drug. And he's having to constantly check it himself because it always autocorrects to drug. Now, recently, uh, someone wrote into a Washington Post op ed advice column called Miss Manners asking the question, what do I do when names aren't pronounced how they are spelled? It's Courtney, not Courtney, okay? It's Dominic, not Dominique. It's Maya, not Mia, all right? Now, we've, all of us have probably seen the key and pill bit at some point, right? Balake, okay? A-A-Ron, you know? For, for us, even with Selah, it's Selah. It's not Saleya, okay? You know, it's not Selah. It's not Sela. It is Selah, all right? Names matter. And we come up with these crazy ways of giving people's, uh, people their names, our children their names. Now, Jordan and I were very intentional about our children's names because we wanted them to be a powerful and prophetic declaration of their destiny with God, being Judah and Selah. In other words, for us, we want our children, no matter where they are in life, to remember their name and where it came from, because it matters. Names matter, even if your name is spelled wrong. However, the goodness of a name isn't determined by the phonetic pronunciation or how it looks aesthetically written out. That's not what having a good name means. What the teacher is saying proverbially is that what really matters is a good reputation. He's not just saying a good name because it sounds good or it looks good written out. 
he is saying what really matters is a good reputation or a good character. What comes to mind when people think of you is more important than the answer to how much money you have in the bank, to how much power you might have, to how much influence you might have. He says it's better than fine perfume. In other words, it is much more important, your reputation, than how much money or access or material goods that you have, or even how many followers you might have in the age of social media. You know, just because people like your content doesn't mean they like you. Just because people like your pictures doesn't mean they approve of your character. The wealthiest man in the ancient world, in Ecclesiastes, is stating to be in good standing with others is of higher value and comparatively better than being full of riches, of which he was. It's much more important. It's interesting because some sociological studies even reveal to us that those with less usually are more generous. So if your reputation is preceding you, as we are told, what is it saying? What kind of name do you have? What do people expect of your behavior? What comes to people's mind when they think about you? The primary reason this actually matters for us as believers is because our reputation isn't even about us. In fact, I think a better word to use would be representation. Our reputation as believers, as followers of the way, is fundamentally about representation. Now, often I hear, I hear people say this very commonly, or often, I don't care what others think of me. Yes, you do. <laughs> or you would not have a job. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have any friends. You know why you actually care? Because we require it to operate together interdependently as human beings. But even if that is your posture today, I don't care what others think about me. And sometimes I understand the sentiment. I understand it. You're confident. I don't need others' approval. Eh, okay, whatever. Yes, you do. But um, it's more important to think of it in terms of representation than just this sort of uh, abstract um, reputation. We aren't so much as believers in pursuit of developing a good name, but rather we are to be increasingly and more clearly representing Jesus' name. Our reputation is about representing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Christ the King, Savior of the world, God incarnate. Our reputation is based upon representation. So maybe the better question isn't what is your reputation, but how well do I or do I not represent the name of Jesus? Simple distinction, massively different impact. 
I'm not just asking what is your reputation. I want to know how well do you or do you not represent the nature and character of the person of Jesus outlined by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, attitudes of the heart, dispositions. How well do you represent Jesus? Do you know why the church in the West doesn't have the greatest public reputation? It's because I think we have struggled to be an accurate representation of our teacher. The pastor-scholar Charlie Dates says this, We have taken the beautiful face of Christ and put on it and over it an image of our own. Not only that, some of us, through our own sinful proclivities, our willful rebellion and our desire to fit in with culture, have become bad advertisement for the name of he who saved us, who redeemed us, is sustaining us, and will one day raise us to himself. Can you not tell that Charlie Dates is a preacher in Jesus' name? (laughs) Often, if we look around, we have become bad advertisement for the name of he who saved us, redeemed us, and is sustaining us, and will one day raise us to himself. Over and over and over again, we as Westerners seek, as believers in the Western church in particular, we seek power and influence rather than being a potent people seeking imitation. We have got to get over the strong force and pull towards power and influence and seek to be a people who are potent and who are imitators. There's a sociologist by the name of James Davison Hunter who wrote a book called To Change the World, and he argues that throughout the last 150, 200 years or so, the church always seeks change primarily through political power, and it doesn't work. It's never worked. Throughout church history, it never works. Doesn't matter if you're left, right, center, anabaptistic, whatever. It doesn't work. We are called to be a unique and distinct people, potent people at that, who imitate our Messiah and lead a life and live a life that is compelling and is an alternative witness to the world in which we live. It's not about power and influence. It's about imitation and potency. It is about representation, not just reputation and top-down influence and power and authority. We don't need to, also friends, we don't need to save the world for the sake of our reputation. But instead, we ought to live as representatives of the Savior in the world. Our world doesn't need more Christian political figures and doesn't need more activists. It needs more saints. Hear me. It needs more saints. We aren't going to save the world. We are part of the problem. We need to be saved. We need to point to the Savior. 
2 Corinthians 5.20 says this in the message. I love it. We are Christ's representatives. The NIV says we are Christ's ambassadors. That is who we are to be. What or who we worship as individuals, and we don't get to choose whether we worship or not. We are all worshipers. We're lovers. What or who we worship dictates what or who we represent. The jersey that you wear represents who you follow. I'm a big Cubs fan. Need a lot of prayer. But I got one World Series in my lifetime, so I'm actually good. I wear a Cubs hat. I've got Cubs gear. You know why? I follow the Chicago Cubs in Jesus' name. The jersey that you wear represents who it is that you follow. Your actions represent your teacher. Your ethics represent your master. Your allegiance represents your king. Be very, very careful when we use the language of pledging allegiance. Because last I check, we only put our faith in one king and pledge allegiance to one kingdom. You cannot serve two masters. In other words, you cannot pledge allegiance to two people or two kingdoms. It is fundamentally impossible. So observation one is now over. On to observation two. You doing okay? I'm holding on by a thread. All right. Do not say, verse 10 says, why were the old days better than these? Or as the message says, where are the good old days? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Nostalgia is a sentimental yearning for the happiness of a former place or time, a wistful desire to return in thought or in fact to a former time in one's place. The word actually has origins as a disease of homesickness for those in war. Just imagine for me, for just a moment, Adam and Eve six months after the garden incident. As the rooster crows, as sweat drops down their brow, as life is hard. Do you, do, you, do you imagine that Adam and Eve were often asking themselves, man, what would it be like today if we were still in the garden? How quickly do you think nostalgia entered into the human story? Pretty quick. How often do you think Adam and Eve said, man, Remember the good old days? Remember how things used to be? And yet they're living east of Eden. Here's the problem for us as we consider this loaded question. You and I can't live in the past. And you can't live in the future. You will only ever live in the present. You are only ever present in your body. 
Now, any golf fans in the house today? Anybody who just loves golf? Great, no one. That's awesome. <laughs> this metaphor is going to land like not at all. <laughs> Even though I'm not the biggest golf fan in the world, and I'm not, I will say, though, I did watch Full Swing on Netflix, and that changed my perspective, okay? It's a good little documentary. I encourage you to watch it. I'm not the biggest golf fan in the world, but I do know that the biggest golf tournament in the world is the Masters at Augusta National. Does everyone know what the Masters is? All right, good. Well done. And did you know, I didn't know this until recently, did you know that the Masters, or Augusta in particular, has one very specific rule? No cell phones or cameras from fans. Despite being well into the 21st century, cell phones and cameras are strictly prohibited for fans at Augusta. Greatest golf tournament in the world. One piece I was reading quoted a reporter in saying, the Masters might be the biggest collection of people on earth with no cell phones. Some estimate up to 40 to 50,000 people from Thursday to Sunday. When the reporter mentioned this, Tiger Woods responded by saying, it's nice, isn't it? Roy McIlroy, who's a really good golfer, okay, <laughs> echoed Tiger Woods speaking to the no cell phones. It's wonderful, isn't it? Tiger went on to say regarding other tournaments, I guess it's different now because the art of clapping is gone, right? You can't clap when you've got a cell phone in your hand. There are many photos of Tiger Woods playing golf. Many. Specifically, there's a wonderful picture comparing a tournament that he is at in comparison to the Masters, teeing off. That means like his first swing. Um, okay. And I thought it was very interesting because it depicted something very different. One tournament compared to the Masters. I want you to see this. Look at the difference. Masters on the bottom, another tournament at the top. A phone in between human beings and the one in which they're trying to capture. Many people looking at their phone, making sure they're capturing the moment. One seeks to freeze time for a future moment, evading the present one. A moment lost while trying to cling on to it. While the other simply has the present moment. Producing an actual neurological and visceral memory. Modern science has now revealed to us that the more photos we take, the easier it is for our brain to lose the experience. It's not saying pictures are bad. Even though my mother has more pictures in my, my parents' house of my two kids than there were ever pictures of drug and I. <laughs> and now I know why. <laughs> pictures are fine. But how often do we find ourselves trying to snap a shot in a moment that we're actually losing the experience in? 
get it right, get it right. Zoom in, zoom in, get it right, get it right. We lose often the moment because we want to somehow freeze time. James K. Smith, a philosopher in his book, How to Inhabit Time, says this. He says, all too often we try to fabricate eternity. We cling and dig in our claws, refusing to let it go. The irony is that we lose in grasping. Sometimes it is precisely when we try to seize and freeze what is passing that we abjure our creaturehood and lose something that is right in front of us. He goes on to say, there are lots of religious people for whom their faith amounts to a leap into a nostalgic past or an escapist future. But the present bedevils them. Awkward and unsettled, they stumble and waver. They know how to be faithful anywhere but now. Or to quote the rapper Macklemore from his song, Good Old Days, <laughs> maybe these are the moments. Maybe I've been missing what it's about. Been scared of the future, thinking about the past while missing out on now. I wish somebody would have told me, babe, someday these will be the good old days. When we seek to cling to the past, we are actually inhibiting the beauty in being finite creatures and limiting our ability to be present in the moment because we can't grasp the past. Because of this evading of the present, we face two temptations that I want us to be aware of. The first is romanticizing the past leading to nostalgia. And I'm not saying you can't go back and watch a movie from the 60s that just captured your heart when you were a young child. I'm not saying you can't go and experience, you know, bumper cars because you did that when you were a child and loved. I'm not saying don't go visit the old homestead. What I am saying, though, is if you're trying to live there, it's going to produce dis-ease because you can't go back. That's the first temptation. The second temptation is romanticizing the future leading to naivety. This is a temptation for much of millennials and Gen Z. We romanticize about the future. Everything's going to be all right. We can make it happen. We are the ones that you've been waiting for. And yet we look around and things just simply are not getting better. Naivety leads to anxiety, which then can lead to depression. Because it's 2023, why haven't we made it further? So we escape into some fictitious future or some fictitious past, rather than living faithfully in the present. Both of these temptations are an attempt at grabbing a hold of seemingly fixed points within time, seeking control, yet it is like trying to hold on to the wind. when we seek to hold on to the wind, it produces what the writer of Ecclesiastes refers to over and over and over and over again as hevel, meaninglessness, futility, 
elusivity, the ephemerality of life, mist, vapor, or wind. So, what if the better decision for us is to hoist a sail in the present? Rather than trying to grab at the wind, what if we just hoist a sail, constantly reminding ourselves that all three, past, present, and future, are history? Not so much our story, but his story. There's a play on words there. Did you pick that up? History, his story. That's pretty good. I'm just saying. So we can do this, I think, by asking three questions as a means of aligning ourselves to his story. What did he do, being Jesus? What will he do? And what is he doing? Some of us are just caught up on what did he do? What did he do? Beautiful. Some of us are just so caught up on what he will do. He's coming again. The Lord's coming again. He's I think he's coming tomorrow. I'm pretty sure he's coming. Do you think the Lord's coming back? I went to get my teeth cleaned the other day and my dental hygienist. First thing she says, do you think the Lord's coming back soon? I said, ma'am, I am faithful to Jesus of Nazareth right here, right now. He is ruler. He is redeemer of all things. He has been. He's already conquered the grave, and he will return at some point in the future, and there will be a new creation. I do not know when he's coming back, but I know that he's king and Lord. I'm more concerned about what is he doing now. So what did he do? What will he do? But also, what is he doing? What is the Spirit of God doing in your life right now? I just got off the stage, man. Seriously, man, what is the Spirit of God prompting you in right now? What is he revealing to you? What is he saying to you in this season, in this time of life that you're in? Because he wants to be active. He is close to those who draw near to him. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be opened. He's there. What is he doing? It's an important question. We know what he did and we know what he will do. But what is he dynamically doing right now in your life, in the life of the church, in the world around us? So the finitude and fleeting nature of life requires a specific kind of attention. A specific kind of attention. And if we're not careful, we will get sucked into the minutia and forget to pay attention. My voice is on its last leg. Some of you are thinking, well, I hope he finishes soon. Ha, <laughs> ah, you're funny. Okay. So I'm going to give a couple of practices for us and how we can be present individuals. Very practical. Let's get practical. You want some life application? Here it comes. I got 10 things. Ways that we can be present daily. Get off social media. Get off of social media. In fact, we as a community are considering for the whole year of 2024 getting off of social media as a whole church altogether. Off. I've done it over the last few months. It's been liberating. Amazing. Seriously. First couple weeks, you're like scratching yourself a little bit. You got withdrawals, but you'll make it through. I promise. We've made it up to this point in human history. You'll be okay. Get off social media. 
Number two, stop binging episodes. They used to come out every week. Now you can binge 13 in one night. That is unhealthy, my friend. Stop binging episodes. Just watch one a week, all right? Number three, read the daily lectionary. This is something that we love at Emmaus. The cool thing about the lectionary is you don't choose it. It chooses you. It's wonderful. It's a way to be present. Number four, this is, I love this, light a candle. Simple. Be present. Light a candle. Hear that woodwick crackle, baby. <laughs> Sounds like glory. Thank you, God. Even if they're killing our lungs, it smells great. <laughs> the fifth thing, journal. Some of you are like, I don't journal. Okay, fine. Draw some pictures. Okay? Use a pen or a pencil. You don't have to type it into your phone. Journal. Sixth thing, listen to some music, not just in transit. Get your record player. Throw on some vinyl. Put on some Ray LaMontagne. That's fine. Groove a little bit. Put on some Coltrane. Okay? Put on some Duke Ellington. Listen. Just be present. Enjoy. Or some Earth, Wind, and Fire, or some Temptations, or some, I don't care what. Throw it on there. All right? We got a diverse crowd in age today, so I'm trying to appeal to the congregation and the audience. All right? Put on some Johnny Cash. I don't care. All right? All the Gen Z people are like, I went to school with a guy named Johnny Cash. No. Uh, the seventh thing is look at a human being in the eye for three seconds. That's the average time a person usually makes eye contact with someone. Make eye contact. Look at a person when they're talking to you. Do not look at your screen. That is so rude. And I get caught doing it sometimes too. Look at a person in the eye. Number eight, I love this one. Give a hug a day. Be present. Give somebody a hug. Number nine, practice gratitude. If you have nothing to be grateful for, man, you're probably not experiencing joy. Practice gratitude. And number 10, sit outside for no reason. Not even walking. Just go sit outside for no reason. Now, on to my final observation for our time together this morning. We have noted that Ecclesiastes is considered wisdom literature. And uh, some form of the word wisdom appears 50 times throughout the book. However, outside of chapters 1 and 2, it doesn't appear again until here in chapter 7. Verse 11 and 12 says this. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. It benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves or energizes or enlivens those who have it. In the digital age, we have developed a somewhat misguided definition of wisdom. We tend to mistake information with wisdom, thus producing misinformation or propaganda. And why is this? Because wisdom is a uniquely human endeavor. Computers can store information, but they can't store wisdom. When information replaces wisdom, it eliminates something profoundly human 
the teacher-student dynamic, the role of grandparents, let alone simple, ordinary conversation. You know, just 20 years ago, you would learn from your grandparents how to live. Teach me your ways, old wise one. That sounds good. My voice is like this. That's great. <laughs> Teach me how to live. And if you didn't ask, they would just tell you. This is what you need to know. You need some life lessons. Let me teach you. 20 years ago. And now, grandparents are asking their grandchildren how to work Roku. <laughs> or how to post on Facebook. Or how to get back on the Wi-Fi. Who are the teachers now? Children. Where's wisdom? Out the door. We want facts, not wisdom. The table has turned. Information has replaced wisdom. When a question is asked in our time now, our natural response is just Google it. Just Google it. Consequently, eliminating the human endeavor. The French sociologist and uh, technology critic Jacques Ellul says this, propaganda begins when dialogue ends. Propaganda begins when dialogue ends. We have all of the information that we need at our fingertips with the click of a button, yet seem to be starving for wisdom. And as a teacher seems to allude, if wisdom is in fact a shelter or a protection, as it says in the New American Standard, without it, without wisdom, we are certainly in danger as human beings. So, the question remains, what is wisdom? In simple form, wisdom is applied knowledge. Knowledge that gets applied. Or to quote the philosopher Dallas Willard, he says this, wisdom is the settled disposition of the soul to act in accordance with knowledge. In particular, wisdom has to do with ordering and judging acts based on a desired outcome. In other words, if it is 11.45 in the morning and you have a noon meeting that's about 10 or 15 minutes away, it would not be wise for you to go buy Starbucks on the way to that meeting. Or if you want to go to college, probably not wise to not study in high school. Or if you're a husband and you want a thriving marriage and you don't do what your wife asks you to do, it's probably not wise. You might want to listen if you want a thriving marriage. Theologian H. Orton Wiley says, knowledge is the apprehension of things as they are, and wisdom is the adaptation of this knowledge to certain ends. Wisdom is uniquely tied to outcomes and ends in conjunction with what we know. But wisdom is not the elimination of information. It just goes beyond it. It transcends it, you might say. 
information leads to knowledge, and knowledge leads to hopefully, hopefully, wisdom. Because you can be young and wise and old and stupid. Can you not? Yes, you can. But life experiences are required for wisdom. Information leads to knowledge. Knowledge leads to wisdom. And we seem to be stuck just at part one, the first step in our digital age. Or it's also referred to as the information age. Certainly not the age of wisdom. One of the primary reasons that we need wisdom and revelation in our world is because the native tongue of the evil one is one of lying. Devil, the word devil means prone to slander or false accuser. The devil is a sort of prosecutor. Interestingly enough, the spirit is called uh, an advocate. Jesus is called a great counselor or lawyer. In the garden, I want you to look at this deception that takes place. Verse 6 of chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining what? Wisdom. She took some and ate it. With just one bite, one taste, or should I say, one click, he is saying that you can gain wisdom and be like God. Here we see in Genesis chapter 3, the first technological device, the first mechanism that's quick, that's easy, and it's controllable. It's very interesting that the image on the back of the device that's in your pocket is of a bitten piece of fruit. Quick, easy, and what? Controllable. But here's the thing. Wisdom cannot be outsourced or ordered online. It takes time. When we assume that it can be gained at once, it leads to our own peril because it gives us this magical illusion that we are sovereign and even omnipotent. And yet we're not. Wisdom is actually the max ceiling in our life under the sun. And it's important. We need wisdom. And we can't just click a button to get wisdom. We need more than wisdom. We need a way, a better way to discern our desired outcomes as human beings. A greater mental map of reality. Someone who's been there before. Maybe someone who created the landscape of which the map is following. We need not just a human master, but we need a divine master. One who doesn't just impart wisdom, but also revelation. Yes, we need wisdom. Yes, we need to receive it from other human beings. But what we need in our time right now, even more so, is divine revelation that has a transcendent source. So here's my prayer today as we've looked at these three observations and I realize they maybe were a little scattered but I think that they were helpful. 
My prayer comes from Ephesians 1.17, from Paul, where he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. In the digital age, we need wisdom to counter the lies of the enemy. We need applied knowledge. We need discernment. We need to step back and to separate things and ask questions and to sit in dialogue with people who have been there before. Intergenerational discipleship is a must for the future. And it's only going to happen in the present. There is no, I'll get to it one day. Today is the day. You are living now. And here's the beautiful thing about the present moment. Revelation comes in the present moment. Revelation means for things to be laid bare, to be revealed. And we need more than wisdom in this life. We need divine revelation that comes from God alone. And though the serpent essentially says, take and eat in Genesis chapter 3, what I love is that take and eat would eventually be the invitation of salvation, providing divine revelation from the revelation of God in Jesus the Christ. He is the revelation of God. So, who are you representing? Are you representing Jesus or someone else today? How are you practicing being present? Or are you caught up in nostalgia or this futuristic naivety? <coughs> and then finally, are you experiencing revelation? I hope that as you come to the table, that you would experience divine revelation today.